I'm Rachel Perkins, and you're listening to Nordic Nation on Faster Skier. In this episode, we dive into the issue of relative energy deficiency in sport, abbreviated REDS. This condition was formerly known as the female athlete triad, which was described as inadequate energy intake, the loss of menstruation, and decreased bone mineral density. The name was changed to include males who are also affected and to expand beyond the three symptoms originally included. Though not quite the same, the condition is closely linked with eating disorders. This topic has seen a lot of buzz following a November opinion piece in the New York Times where former high school running phenom Mary Kane shared her story of abuse by her coach Alberto Salazar at the Nike Oregon Project. While trying to get down to the weight he deemed optimal for her, she lost her period, her performance decreased, and she was littered with stress fractures. Further concerns arose a few weeks later when Ingvild Flugstad Osberg and Frida Carlson were pulled from their World Cup starts after not meeting team health standards for BMI and bone density, presumably due to underfueling. In this episode, we speak with licensed professional counselor and two-time Olympian Holly Brooks, registered sports dietitian Rebecca McConville, and longtime coach turned voice of World Cup cross-country skiing and biathlon, Chad Salmala. This episode is brought to you by Visit Sun Valley and the Boulder Mountain Tour. Known as Nordic Town USA, Sun Valley remains an iconic cross-country ski destination, with a Nordic festival kicking off with town sprints and a party on January 29th. You'll find great family events continuing through to the Boulder Mountain Tour on Saturday, February 1st, and concluding on Sunday with the BMT Block Party and Awards Bash. So um, maybe to start off, if we can go around and have everybody say a couple things about um, who you are, what you do, and um, what your background is with this topic. So maybe, Holly, if you want to kick that off. Sure. Uh, My name is Holly Brooks, and I'm a former APU coach and skier, and then two-time Olympian and uh, U.S. ski team member. And today I'm a licensed professional counselor in Alaska. Um, And I work in the intersection between sports psychology, athletes, and mental health. Um, And then I'm also the U.S. ski team uh, ski and snowboard athlete rep to the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee and sit on the, the board of directors. And so, um, you know, this is a, a topic that is personal to me, but also comes up in my in my professional work as well. So I'm really glad that this conversation is happening. Yeah, we are too. And um, Rebecca, do you want to go next? Sure. So I am a sports dietitian, but also an eating disorder specialist. Um, my athletic background is in basketball um, and probably struggled with what would have been female athlete at that point, now Reds. And so that's always planted the seed of personal interest. And then um, met Holly through, I participated in like a supervision group for sports psychology, trying to learn a little bit more about how to better team sports psychologist and um, just really connected with her on that platform. Um, I have a book called Finding Your Sweet Spot that is devoted to education around REDS um, and a very lay person. So uh, a parent or young athlete themselves can read it and be able to identify signs and hopefully prevent. Great. And uh, last but not least, Chad, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Chad Samala. I was a former U.S. biathlon team member back in the 90s. Um, also served as an athlete rep like um, Holly did for eight years for biathlon, had both the uh, board directors and uh, U.S. Olympic Committee Athletes Advisory Council level. I've been coaching since pretty much the year I quit 
competing in 98 off and on, um, been a high school running coach, a college ski coach, a U.S. biathlon team coach, and a uh, now a college running coach. Um, and I, this topic goes back to teammates. I've had teammates as an athlete. I've had um, uh, definitely male and female athletes in both sports that I've worked with over the time who have clearly shown symptoms, if not, you know, been diagnosed outright and have had symptoms of these, of these, um, of, of reds. And, uh, and I think it's a really important topic that we need to, that we need to shed some light on. And I think, um, be, be very careful with in terms of personal information, but also speak openly about it enough to actually do something about it and make some progress. Um, for both coaches and athletes, I think. So let's start with just kind of um, the basics here as far as um, REDS or uh, RED-S, as far as uh, relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, what is this condition and, and what is kind of the intersection um, between relative energy dis- deficiency and an eating disorder? So maybe, Becca, do you want to tackle that? <laughs> Great question, Rather, Shoot, that's a tough one to tackle. Um, So by definition, what that means is what energy is available for the body to do its day-to-day function and then what energy is going to be available for it to do the training adaptation that may be required from the sports. So you can see a shift if there is not enough energy available, most of the time the body will actually prioritize its sport first and then we'll slowly start to see dysfunction Um, And things like digestion, um, maybe their brain cognitive function, bone health. We we may start to see amenorrhea or glomels, their testosterone drop. Um, One thing I've learned over time is it's amazing how there is no cookie cutter um, body responses. Everybody is unique in that. And it becomes tricky because reds could result from an eating disorder. Um, in their sport, or it could be a lack of knowledge, not being aware of what their training requires from them, especially in our adolescent athletes that are still actively growing, Um, or they have crossover sports, so they may shift from one to another. So again, that's another demand on the body physiologically that they're thinking, oh, I'm still doing two hours of activity, but they don't realize that maybe intensity's changed or it's a different type of activity, um, what puts them at risk. I generally find that you can sort out if it's an eating disorder one, you can always recommend that they see a very knowledgeable um, clinician that knows sports, but also knows eating disorders. If they're struggling to do the work that they need to do to return back to their sport or physical health, their anxiety starts to go up and then you can start to see that it's more about just knowledge. There's some sort of coping mechanism that's going on there. And why is this a concern as far as um, why is REDS such a kind of serious topic um, and condition that people need to be be aware of? You want me to speak to that again? Or sure, you? yeah. <laughs> um, well, anything that we start looking at, physiolog- physiological change, that means their health. So, um, unfortunately, I've had younger athletes come in that already have decreased bone density, um, they may have had some cardiac abnormalities that come up on EKG with that heart being strained. The great thing is, is that most of this is correctable over time, but their quality of life gets diminished. They, they don't want to go out for pizza with their friends 
um, and be able to go on vacation without obsessing over what they're eating. Um, they may find themselves really, really tired. And so they're going to bed at eight o'clock at night and just kind of taking the joy out of their life because they don't have that extra energy to be able to go do the things that they need and could ultimately increase their injury risk. Um, you know, Boston Children's Hospital is doing some really cool studies now looking at ACL risk um, in those that are in an, a decreased energy availability state. So any athlete can relate to the fact that we don't want to be injured and pulled from their sport and their lack of fueling can contribute to that. And Chad, you, you were just mentioning that you've, um, you've seen some of this or noticed some of this in some of your male athletes as well. Can you talk a little bit about like how how this maybe presents differently or or how this kind of presents in a male versus female athlete and and the ways in which they're infected? You know, I, I think everybody agrees it's really hard to, to put it to pinpoint um, these things. In my case, um, the male athlete that I that was that was most affected by this actually came in and, and had had the pro, had an eating disordered eating and had and had been um, in had gotten help, you know, professional health and help and, and was actually, um, you know, in, inpatient was an inpatient post inpatient when I, when I started working with, with the male athlete. Um, but, but I think the, you know, I think the implications other than maybe, uh, you know, some of the physiological, long-term physiological downfalls to, to, to w that women experience are probably very similar to men. Um, and I think, I think it's just really, uh, important that we realize it's not a female mm -hmm. experience only. Um, so, you know, I, but, but a lot of the, a lot of the manifestations, a lot of the psychology I think is similar, uh, no matter what your gender is and what your motivations are and where people start, um, where people start is, is in eating less while training is, it may come from different things, but it ends up in very similar, it ends up in a very similar place after enough time. Holly, did you have any follow-up on that, either of those points? Yeah, I guess just a, a couple of things. Um, when I think about REDS, uh, you know, I think about how lots of athletes have disordered eating, um, but it exists on a spectrum, right? When does it become an eating disorder? Um, you know, and then the differences in, or the gender differences, you know, I think about um, adolescent girls hitting puberty and having that increase in estrogen and having their um, body potentially becoming temporarily a um, little bit bigger, a little bit softer. Um, and, you know, sometimes that can cause a decrease in performance. And then um, men instead um, have that increase in testosterone. And so, um, you know, they're, they're kind of moving more towards the the male ideal um, for performance. And I think there are lots of different um, gendered implications. Um, but as uh, Becca said, there are so many, um, both physical and uh, mental or psychological um, effects for, for any athlete um, that isn't fueling properly. And let's get into, like, why is this something that is so prevalent in sport and in particular sports like skiing or running or cycling where there's sort of this like gravity you're fighting gravity a little bit um and there's there's maybe some advantage to being to being lean or to being lighter um and and maybe holly if you want to talk a little bit about 
in my mind, sometimes, and, and maybe this is sort of a naive perspective, but I always envisioned that skiing would be maybe a little less, um, like this might be a little less pervasive in skiing because you need to be powerful. You need to be strong and, and having muscle on your body is, is a good thing versus, you know, distance. If you think about kind of a, the traditional distance runner look of being super lean, um, it maybe makes a little more sense, but can you talk a little bit about that as far as the prevalence in sport and, and how that plays a role in skiing? And Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at the statistics, um, skiing, we are a little bit more protected than a sport like distance running. Um, but you have uh, sports like endurance, endurance sports, um, distance running, like people are talking about the epidemic of eating disorders, particularly in, in women's distance running. Um, but other sports that are that are really affected and and athletes that I work with are sports that have like an aesthetic nature, cheerleading, dance, um, wrestling, for example. But I think skiing, we're lucky in that we're an endurance sport. But like you said, there's also a large strength component. Um, and so if you're not fueling properly, um, you're going to lose uh, that fast twitch ability. Um, and, and so we have an endurance and a strength component. And so we need our muscles. We need that fast twitch ability. We need, um, you know, the glycogen to, to fuel that. Um, and so I think in some ways our sport is a little bit more protected than something like distance running, but it is still a huge issue in cross country skiing. Yeah. And I, I think we should, I want to piggyback that that's not, um, just from the physical aspect, there aren't just problems in endurance sports. I think, you know, mm. I, I, I'm through my wife, I'm very connected with international women's ice hockey. Um, it's an issue there. It's an issue team wide in some teams. And a lot of it has to come from messages being sent to the athletes from coaches and people in the administration and selection procedures. So, you know, if you have a, if you have a, a, an entire team weigh in, and the team's being picked right after they've been weighed in, you're getting a message of what what matters to that coaching staff. So um, it's one of the things that that really, as a coach, as somebody who's interested in the health of athletes and being a coach at the same time, that it, it goes beyond what just the sport requires, and it goes into culture. It goes into team culture. It goes into culture uh, at large. So it's clear that it is a problem in endurance running, which I'm coaching right now. Um, but it's also a problem in sports. You would never think that it would, it would matter because it's a power and speed sport. Absolutely. I mean, you guys both had excellent points. I always tell my clients, there's a trifecta. You've got the physiological demands. You have the um, culture history within that sport. And then you have the culture within that team. Yeah. So I think our media is doing a great job of bringing attention, but I admit I want to pull my hair out when we focus on only a couple sports because when I worked in the university setting, so many of them would come, well, I'm not a runner, so therefore I couldn't be suffering from this. Or it wasn't until 2015 that we finally moved away from it being called the female athlete triad to reds, which finally included males. Um, and so we're opening the door to education, but we definitely still have more work to do. And I love hearing the word culture because I really think that's what we need to probably focus on most. And let's get into that a little bit more as far as, um, 
Holly, when we were chatting before we started here, uh, you were talking a little bit about that you think the the women on the US ski team have a really good relationship, positive relationship with body image and with food and certainly have people like Jesse Diggins who's speaking out about her history with an eating disorder and um, kind of what she's done as far as like working towards recovery and having a more healthy mindset, healthy relationship. Um, but what do you think as far as like the overall climate in skiing right now um, or whether that's domestic, whether that's kind of at the, the junior level, at the upper levels, what, what do you see as the climate and the culture in skiing and the messages that are being sent to maybe the developing athletes in the U.S.? You know, I think I, I can't thank Jessie enough for being so outspoken about her own history with her eating disorder and, you know, being kind of presented as a role model for I am better now because I fueled properly right? I am skiing fast because I fuel properly. Um, to be perfectly honest, I'm a, I'm a little concerned with, um, you know, some of the other international skiers. Um, you know, I think that the prevalence of eating disorders is, is widespread in many countries, but, you know, especially in Scandinavia, um, if you look at at Norway, um, they've they've definitely had an issue with that. And a lot of the reading that I've done, uh, the prevalence of eating disorders in Norway in general, um, in in skiing too, uh, their prevalence for eating disorders is is higher. Um, and you know, if you look at the research uh, on role models, girls tend to look at the people who are around around them, the people who are approachable, the people who they, they see every day. So, you know, if they're, they're looking, um, towards Yohug, <laughs> um, that, that can be, uh, she's a little bit of an outlier. Right. And so, um, I think it's concerning if people are trying to change their bodies to, to look like Yohug. I think that we have more diversity, um, in, in bodies on, on the U S women's team. And I think it's really encouraging that we've had awesome performances across the board um, from so many of our, our different athletes with, with different body types. Um, and so I think it's really important that we're talking about this. I think it's been uh, a taboo subject for a long time. And so I just, I'm so, I'm so happy that this conversation is, is happening. Um, and, and I, I can't, I can't help but, but thank people like Mary Kane. Um, I I think we need to talk about her in this whole conversation, um, for destigmatizing, um, you know, eating disorders and, and physical and, and emotional abuse, um, that are, are comorbidities of, of athletic culture. Yeah. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to jump in there. I think the Mary Kane thing is a, if you're a young athlete listening to this podcast, I just want to say something very plain and simple. Mary Kane was an incredible talent at a young age who had a pretty normal body, went to a nationally an internationally competitive program where they body where they shamed her into an eating disorder and they ruined her. <laughs> it's like that's that that is infuriating to me that here is an athlete. Who, if they were, if she was probably left to her, her own devices and not gone with these so, quote unquote expert coaches, 
she might be better and maybe even the best runner in the world today. We will never know. But there's one thing for certain is that this topic being forced on her by, by primarily male coaching staff almost ruined the girl. And, and there's just no, there's no excuse for that. And can you talk a little bit about as far as what, what role should a coach play in this in terms of how do you create that healthy climate on your team to make sure that girls are, you know, not just girls, but girls and boys, but that your athletes are, are taking the right approach to this and that the climate that you're creating is not one where it's normal not to get periods or everybody needs to be taking iron supplements or some of these sort of like warped, um, warped things that are seen. Um, is it all right if I take this one, everybody? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I'm going to go a little bit into my history as even a college ski coach and, and definitely a running coach. So, um, when I took the job in, at St. Scholastica, the NCAA started NCAA ski program. I, you know, I used to get questions and this is in 2006. This is, oh, you know, this is, this is 14 years ago. I'd get parents coming in saying, well, can you help us with, with, uh, with, um, diet and nutrition? And I honestly, I, I already knew at 2016 that this was a, this was a scary topic for me that I hadn't fully um, educated myself on or had a lot of experience on it. And, and I just, I didn't, I didn't go there. I didn't talk about it. I was scared to talk about it. I was scared to mess kids up because I've always been involved as an athlete, as a coach, I've always been particularly as a coach and as, as a mentor, I've always been got, got, taken my job from the perspective of first do no harm. And when, when you're, when you look at what's going on around distance running or you it, skiing for, for that matter, and you see these these things happening with food, if you're a do-no-harm person at the core, even more importantly than being a results-oriented person, you're going to shy away from it. And, and, and I avoided it for the longest time. And, and then um, as I took on the running coaching job, I started realizing that we had had at our school some, some athletes who, have, who had clearly gone through some pretty rough stuff. And I, and, and I personally just didn't think it was handled very well, not that I have a roadmap or an or a a highly successful career of dealing with this issue but i i came to the realization in working with our um our mental health professionals who are supporting the students at the college that i needed to i needed to hit this head on and talk about it and find a, a comfortable and safe and an effective way to talk about it with the student athletes so where where i have have come and have had We've had very, I've had very obvious um, um, athletes with who were very obviously dealing with this, and, and and I can't say that I've that I or my coaching staff has has dealt with it perfectly or even well for that matter. But um, I learned some new things by working with my with my um, uh, mental health staff at the college, and I. And we've gone to a point where we address this topic and have a I, I, my first week at camp for cross country season. We sit down and every night we have a lecture series. And the second night is is this topic. And I, I think I've had I think I, I can count on two hands, at least in, in four years of athletes who have come to me after that and said, this is really this is the first time I've ever heard anybody talk about this this way. I was kind of leaning this way. And this is a really helpful thing for me to deal with it. Um, so that, that feels good. And, and, and if I wasn't having those conversations, there's six to eight kids who are dealing with this and maybe, maybe further along and, and in a worse place today than they were when we addressed it. So, 
and I think secondly, so that, that's one way that programmatically I've changed as a coach. I, but I think in general, there is a wink, wink, nudge, nudge culture out there, especially among male coaches coaching female distance or distance runners or endurance athletes that, well, you know, it works. <laughs> you know, there's that, there's that kind of that knowing thing like, yeah, it, it's kind of a shame, but you know, it works. And again, if you're a young female listening athlete listening to this, um, I want you to, if there's one thing you can take away as a coach who has, who has dealt with this more than once, um, that there's, there's always a very hefty downside to pay for going that direction. And, and there's no proof to me that I can say that, that without, without leaning out to a great extent that those athletes would have been, wouldn't have been better if they'd never gone that way. I think that the, the, the actual, the actuality is that if, if you, you're going to be better off and a better athlete longer, if you never mess with your nutrition and, and your caloric intake, um, you're going to be better long-term if you never do that. And, and I, and I'm, and I, and I'm emphatic about that. And Holly, as a, as a mental health professional, can you kind of model, like if, if, as a coach, if you are a, if you're concerned about one of your athletes that you suspect might be going through something like this? Do you have any recommendations as far as like how do you approach that athlete and how do you ask some of those questions to kind of probe about what's going on without necessarily making that person feel, you know, targeted or or um, defensive or anything like that? Absolutely. But if I could just go go back um, sure. in the conversation for a moment, I just want to acknowledge that I think um, the time for change is now. And if we look at the entirety of the Olympic movement, um, you know, and, and what I've really noticed with my involvement through the USOPC is we used to have, and, and we still do, have this medals first culture, right? It's the wink, wink. It's what Chad was talking about. It's the instant gratification. It's the, it's the, let's think about this weekend. Let's think about this year. Let's, Let's get those instant results without looking at the overall long-term health of the athletes. Um, and, and that is changing. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about post-traumatic growth and, well, what happened with um, the, the gymnasts and Larry Nassar was, was horrible. Um, it really gave a lot of power and funding and voice um, to things like the creation of safe sport. And what we're seeing is the entire Olympic movement um, going more towards an athlete's first um, rather than a medals first concept. You know, we're having conversations about how do we get mental health into Olympic sport and the trickle down effect of that. Um, safe sport is about more than just sexual harassment. It's about bullying and emotional support. And, you know, I just want to acknowledge um, the work that Lauren Fleischman's been doing in, in this space. She wrote a rebuttal um, to all the, the Mary Kane video and, and New York Times piece. And, and her piece is called I Changed My Body for Sport and No Girl Should. And in it, she talks about how um, there should be a sports hall of fame for coaches who develop athletes for longevity. Right. She's talking about how um, athletes at the top level are in their 20s and 30s. And, and 
we have to get athletes there. We have to see beyond the state championship two months away, right? We have to create and um, nurture athletes who have a healthy relationship with their bodies and food. And to do that, we have to start talking about it. And four years ago, I went around to all of the cross-country running teams here in Anchorage and talked about Reds S and the female athlete triad. And I began every presentation by saying, who has heard of this? Not a single hand went up in the nine teams that I went to talk to. And so I think the first thing is, you know, blowing the top off of this and, and talking about it. Um, because it's been such a taboo topic, like Chad said, he didn't want to mess anything up. He didn't want to touch it. Um, and so I think that's, that's the hardest thing. Um, and so luckily the conversation has started. Um, we are talking about it and there are good models out there. Um, in terms of your question, Rachel, about how to talk to someone, you know, if you're, if you're concerned about it, obviously you know, it's, it's kind of a nuanced thing. And I would hope that, um, you know, you have a foundation. I love the fact that Chad um, brought someone else in to talk about it the second day of practice. Just open up the conversation right away. I think that, that that's a really great precedent. Um, but if you're concerned about someone, um, you know, I, I think that, um, you can be honest, you know, I would, I would try to find a time where you can talk to that athlete in private, um, and say, Hey, um, I've, I've noticed that you seem to be, you know, lacking energy or you seem really down, um, or, you know, your body composition has, has changed a little bit. Is everything okay? Um, and so I think coming at it from, um, uh, just a place of concern about the person. Um, and, and that can be a, a good place to start having good referral sources. You know, if you're not comfortable or, or trained, um, in, in this space is, is really important, but I think it's, it can be really disastrous if we don't say anything at all. Um, and, and so there's a great resource. It's called with all, um, it's, it's a new nonprofit um, that is talking about how do you start these hard conversations and they have a, a what to say campaign um, and they're, they're coming out with a coach's challenge and they have five phrases you can say to your athlete, you know, if you're concerned about, um, about their, their eating habits um, and, and why they matter. So uh, withall.org is is the website, and that's an awesome resource. Yeah, and I'm going to just piggyback that. I think the other thing is is you have to realize that most most kids or young athletes who are who, who you're going to need to have the conversation with are highly competitive people. They're, they're, that's why that's kind of the impetus of the issue, and and having that conversation and and maybe steering it away it's really effective to steer the conversation and give the conversation to a mental health professional who isn't about the, the progress in sport for that athlete. Like taking the sport out of it, I think is really important. And how about from the nutrition perspective, Becca, 
Um, what, as far as your book, obviously is an amazing resource for athletes and coaches, but, um, can you talk a little bit about that as far as like what, you know, in addition, maybe to bringing in a mental health professional, bringing in somebody that can give real sound advice in terms of sports nutrition and properly fueling bodies. You want to talk a little bit about what that looks like? Many times, um, sports dietitians will either for a pretty reasonable fee or will come in for free as well. And you want to look for a certified sports specialist because they're going to have the arm of understanding sports nutrition, but they also, I mean like 35% of our exam is based on reds and eating disorders. So they should have a little bit of knowledge, but I always try to look and model after some of the best, um, programs that offer resources and I had a friend that played at Tennessee for Pat Summit and she commented like day one everybody on that team was brought in and was given a list of all the resources that were on the campus now granted University of Tennessee probably has a lot more resources than most would but you could even model something like that in your community like here's some great sports dietitians here's some great mental health clinicians here's some great physical therapists these are some issues that can come up in your sport, or you may just want to preventively go in and occasionally make sure that you're on target or hence the name of a book, like finding your sweet spot. Like how do you maintain that all season long to prevent this from happening? And these might be some symptoms that come up that you may need further addressing. So you're already equipping them ahead of time. Um, and just continuing with that positive thought. I always talk about, let's not say what we're going to take out, Let's talk about what we're going to add in. And that always kind of goes to that positive mindset and doesn't have them always feeling like they have to change their body to do so. And I want to get back a little bit to Holly's point about um, sort of just the the structure of the system and and shifting towards more of like an athlete first um, perspective. So I'm I'm looking at the the U.S. Ski and Snowboard mission um, or vision statement says – The vision of the U.S. Ski and Snowboard is to make the United States of America the best in the world in Olympic skiing and snowboarding. The mission of of U.S. Ski and Snowboard is to lead, encourage, and support athletes in achieving excellence by empowering national teams, clubs, coaches, parents, officials, volunteers, and fans. So the the kind of like key points in there, right, are the best in the world and achieving excellence. And um, I think kind of across the board, right, youth sports are sort of becoming this kind of like it's not what it was 20 years ago. It's not, you know, it's, it's super serious. People are kind of, it's almost like kids are becoming professional athletes at 14. Um, and, and what kind of in, in thinking about that, um, and, and shifting it more towards an athlete focused kind of more holistic system that, um, is, is prioritizing kids mental and physical health throughout their development as an athlete. Like what, what checks and balances need to be in place um, in kind of the pipeline or the pathway in terms of getting to the top in skiing or, or just competing at a high level in skiing to make sure that kids aren't going to be kind of churned out by this system and, and kind of uh, put in a position where they might be going down some of these roads to, to achieve results. I don't know if anybody is interested in jumping in on that one. <laughs> That's a big, that's a big yeah. one. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I've got, I'll, I'll start just, uh, I've got two young kids. I've got a, a nine, a 10 and 11 year old, well, almost 11 year old. And they're both playing sports. And, um, I think it, it's really, it's, it's such a big issue because, you know, there are personal dynamic, interpersonal dynamics between children and their parents. Um, there is the, the focus on winning to, at, at too young an age. And, and, and I'll just invoke this. The um, HBO seri- uh, real sports series on Norway not having results posted for skiers until they're 15, um, and I think that's a huge that simple thing can could change a lot of this mentality. And I and I think what we're seeing in regards to this to this um, this topic it's it's tied to the greater topic that um, sport has become a measuring stick of success for mm-hmm. parents of their own kids. For um, you know, for kids of themselves, but I, I think we're finding more and more kids before they're even able to make the decision as to what they want to be or whether they even want to be an athlete. They're being pushed into sports and expected to win at younger and younger ages. And really, what we're seeing is this: this uh, red is, is a manifestation. I think several years down the road of that process, and it's happening not just in the United States but worldwide. And, and at least the Norwegians have have addressed that issue, at least from a competitive side of things. So I think. Um, the more we think that it's important that our kids get a college scholarship in sports, the, the more likely we're going to have problems like this and, and in other areas in, in psychological issues. So I don't know that I have the answer. I think that changing the narrative of what sports m- needs to mean to your child, if you're a parent, um, I think changing the narrative or changing the, the tone of, of youth sports organizations from um, especially under the ages of 12 and 13, it being less about winning and more about learning. Um, until that happens, we're going to have these problems that manifest themselves late, you know, five to eight years later. Yeah, over specialization. I, I put that in the beginning of the book is one of the biggest contributors I think we see in adolescent reds um, because there are kids that are, my daughter's 10 and she has friends that easily put in 12 to 15 hours of activity um, and so I think really trying to educate the parents, the risk of what they're going to have to do physically, most of the time, female athletes burn out by age 12 to 13 in their sport that they're specializing in. And then really trying to, the great thing is I have amazing colleagues that sometimes put me in check as now a parent coach, um, like Becca, you got to back off, let her find her own way. And I think that more that we can have positive uh, parents sharing that on social media, like Tommy John Jr. is great at nonstop putting positive stories and supporting parents about decreasing over specialization, the better off we're going to see the, the future of our athletes. Yeah. And in that similar vein, as far as sort of the, the solutions to kind of decreasing the prevalence of, of reds and kind of creating a better culture. Um, as far as kind of looking at, at the Norwegian team, um, which I think at the, the beginning of the season when um, the news came out that Ingvild Osberg was not going to be able to compete, it sort of, um, that she wasn't meeting team standards, um, health standards. And I looked into a little bit about just what some of those like IOC requirements are because the Norwegian team was basing their their requirements on the IOC recommendations um and in just sort of thinking about this as far as like there's this um 
see. It's the uh, the periodic health evaluation um, consensus statement that the IOC issued, which is essentially just more regular health screenings for athletes for a variety of reasons, not just for these these types of reasons. But um, in thinking about kind of like, I think there was sort of a, um, a lot of people were sort of like, oh, kudos to Nor- Norway for sort of like really tracking their athletes and, and you know, putting putting an effort into this. Um, and, and my question is sort of thinking about using mandatory weigh-ins and body scans and, and kind of like a, it seems a little bit like a top-down um, approach to to the topic as far as like you're not meeting these requirements so you can't compete. On the flip side, that's also really protecting the health of the athletes or, or um, focusing on the health of the athletes. But maybe Holly, can you talk a little bit about, do you see that as a holistic approach um, or do you think that it's maybe missing some of the nuances of kind of the mel- mental health component of of what's going on in these types of situations? I mean, a, to- a top-down approach definitely isn't a holistic approach, right? right? I mean, a holistic approach is like a massive cultural shift, you know, grassroots changes, and, you know, maybe a top-down approach as well. I think that we need those checks and balances in place, um, but I would just kind of um, echo, like, what Chad said about, hey, let's let's not have results for kids under the age of 13. I mean, I had someone in my office yesterday who was totally, you know, I mean, he was a super talented athlete, age 15, burnt out and done. You know, kids Mm -hmm. grow at like different rates and mature at different rates. And it's, it's super confusing. Um, and, and so, and then what Becca was saying about the early sports specialization, you know, as parents, we need to kind of check ourselves and make sure that we're not trying to live vicariously through, um, you know, through our own children and, and pushing them into things that they don't want to do such that they don't find joy in their, in their sport at all. Um, so I know I'm going around, I, I, I'm not, not sure if I'm answering your question at all, but you know, the holistic approach, um, you know, I also think that we need to take mental health into consideration. You know, it's not just um, these physical factors, but, um, you know, like I've asked the U.S. ski team to, um, hey, like, let's have the, at the beginning of the year, you know, we have these sport physicals. Well, what about like a mental health intake? Mm-hmm. You know, what are, what are, what's going on like in between your ears? Like what are the invisible signs? You know, that's the hard thing with mental health is that we, it's a lot harder to measure, right? You have to ask, um, you know, and a lot of it is based on self-disclosure. And so, you know, if we're to look at a holistic, um, you know, system of, of health that includes, you know, the psychological factors and the physiological factors, those go hand in hand. Um, You know, and whenever I work with an athlete, I always tell them, you know, my, my goal is for you to be able to, um, you know, continue your sport um, as long as you want to, right? I want you to protect your relationship and your love of the sport, but I also want you to be able to physically be able to compete in your in your sport um so i don't i don't know if that answers your question but 
I think Holly's, I think Holly's got great points. I think that if you look at um, what's going to change, what's going to be the, the discussion point change for the, for the broad world of sports. And I, and, and, and I think that's important and I think we have to address that, but going back to what we're seeing, um, I forgot to mention that I'm a TV commentator for Nordic skiing as well. And I'm doing every one of these world cups every weekend. So I'm very involved in all that information about Osberg and what we can assume to be the situation with Frida Carlson. Um, and, and I think from my own personal experience, I, I've, I've gone back and forth and I think having a top down approach at the elite level um, it, it can be good. I'm not sure it, it, it's universally good, nor is it um, universally good to just let people uh, figure it out um, because sometimes they may not. I think that, it, I think that a, you know, as this becomes an issue at elite sport, talking about the World Cup level, that you have a national federation that can set their own guidelines for these things. Um, at a college level, we have our college and we, are, we have our own guidelines. Um, you know, and, and my instinct with, this, with one athlete was to try to fit the athlete for, for the season until um, they positively affected their, their BMI. But, but they, they passed the minimum BMI, and I could see that there was still a problem. And what, really what it forced me to do was is have a conversation with that athlete. And, and what we did is I think we got further down the road than left to my own instincts at the time to maybe pull that athlete from competition because I'm the coach and I say so, was to actually engage the mental health process with mental health professionals, um, have that athlete work with the mental health professionals, have that athlete and myself have conversations three ways or, or, or on the side of that of what competition means and, and what my concerns are. And what that did for me is it actually let that athlete know why I didn't want them to compete in a competition and what, what, what my fears were as a coach. And, my, and it, was, you know, it, it allowed me the opportunity to express my health and well-being for them. Now, some athletes may, may appreciate that, and some athletes in that situation might not be in an emotional and, and psychological state to appreciate it and maybe fight you on it. In that, in, in that case, I'm not, you know, there's no good answer. I think that um, at the, the higher you go up in the sport and the more adult athletes we're talking about, I think that we have to have um, a, a less black and white and a slightly more circumstantial approach to it. And I think that is exactly what Norway and Sweden are at least trying to do with holding athletes out this year. And I applaud that. I don't know that it's a universally a good thing to say you're out if your if your BMI is too low or, or, or whatever they're talking about, their bone density. Um, but it's a start. I think that the fact that I think Holly would agree that we've been hearing stuff about the Norwegian women's national team for over a decade uh, about eating disorder. And it's taken this long for there to be a statement made by the NSF that, that one of their athletes, one of their star athletes is being held out for health reasons. And, and I, you know, I think it's, and I think that's honestly probably why we're having this conversation in this podcast right now. And if I, if I could add one thing real quick, I think if you treat it similar as if that athlete had an injury, okay, it looks like you're struggling. You need to do this procedure. Let's double check the same thing. If you're starting to see something, whether they acknowledge it or not, and be like, I would like for you to try to seek out and get some nutrition counseling, um, get some ongoing counseling, come back in two weeks and let's see how you're doing. And if you're ready to compete in your sport, you're not immediately trying to ban them from that. But you're also saying like the red flag is thrown up and we need to monitor you. So there's no long term consequences. That's exactly you. You, you did. You said it quicker than I did. <laughs> <laughs> 
And let's get to Holly's point here as far as um, how does diet culture, orthorexia, which my understanding is sort of an, that's an, uh, sort of extreme focus on healthy eating. Is that correct? And, um, and elimination diets, some of these like low carb, high fat trend kind of thing. Um, and, and sort of just the, the media in general, as far as some of the messaging that kids are receiving about what healthy eating is or what a healthy body looks like. Um, how is that connected to this conversation? Holly, do you want to start? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say that the, the prevalence of, of orthorexia and, and diet culture is, is rampant. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of confusion out there about um, what, what, what's a healthy diet, like what's a performance diet. Um, and, you know, orthorexia is not in the DSM, the Diagnostic uh, Manual. Because um, no one can agree on a, um, you know, a, a single definition. Um, and Becca can talk about this more. But, um, you know, people are talking about keto or paleo or low carb or, you know, high fat. Like, and, it, and I think it's extremely confusing. Um, you know, and I think in some ways uh, the media has been helpful in showing that powerful can be strong. Um, but I was in a training, this was a couple months ago and we were talking about orthorexia and, you know, we were talking about, um, like the implications of Snapchat, for example, and, you know, Snapchat has these filters, right. Where you can like become a bunny or like, you know, whatever, like you can, you, you like can look like a cartoon character, but, you know, we were talking about how, um, you know, the filters on Snapchat just really exacerbate these, you know, um, these like unrealistic ideals, right? And so teenagers who are going through puberty and, you know, or are, you know, maybe naturally going to have acne are seeing themselves as totally disparate from like this Snapchat filter. And it creates this, this discourse or th this discord and, or, dissonance right in their um in their minds and so i i just want to talk about how like these elimination diets i think can be really unhealthy and i think a lot of people are you know using um hey i'm gluten-free i'm vegan i'm this or i'm that as an excuse um or as like a, a pass to restrict um and get away with it and i i would love for becca to just kind of address that. And uh, I, I can hear her laughing, but um, I, I think we would be remiss not to talk about this. Absolutely. And I think this is where, as Chad said, culture. Culture becomes the key word because you see we have the athlete identity and what they feel like they need to do for their sport, but we also have their image in society, what they believe they should be doing um, to fit in their, their personal culture. And then those two collide. And then we take the traits of that athlete, driven, perfectionistic, very type A, black and white, and they're going to grasp on to whatever straw they can to think that they're getting that competitive edge. And so that's one of the things I'll see common in my practice is, um, they may be underfueled, and so they're struggling with digestion and bloating. So what do they say? Oh, I must have a food intolerance, so I'm going to try cutting out gluten. And in regards to that, they may actually be per 
doing a little better self-care so they actually feel better oh that was it that must be why i'm performing better then they go on for a few more weeks they start having issues again oh i must need to cut out dairy because such and such athlete did that and so they just continue where that perfectionism then translates into their food and nutrition to the point that they don't even realize that actually their performance and their health is declining and that's where i can usually get them to see like okay when you made these changes did it actually benefit your performance did your lab start to suffer did you start to not be able to recover as much and a lot of times we'll say no actually i was performing worse well then obviously it's not working for you before we start to wrap up here i just want to ask um is there anything from either our list or just outside of our list that we'd like to touch on before we before we go i i would like to just say one thing i think that since we're talking about diet, I think that it's important to realize for young athletes to realize, and this is one of the one of the topics that I hit on in my second night of of, of, of uh, lectures, is that when you're when you're an athlete, especially an endurance athlete, um, you know the, the the talk of 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 carb free. I mean, we we live and die by carbs and live and die by proteins. We we are building strength as skiers and even as runners. You need you need all aspects of food. You need to hit. You need to have a, a well balanced diet. If you're training a lot of volume as an aerobic athlete and you're doing it well, you're burning a lot of fat too. You, a, a long over distance roller ski or run. If you're running an hour and a half, two hours, you're going to dip into your fat stores, and you need to. You need. You need fat. You need protein to recover, and you need. You definitely need carbohydrates. Um, that's where the glycogen that's fueling your performance is coming from, and. Uh, I, I think that um, to say that we have to exclude something from your diet and be and try to be a better athlete, they don't they don't work well together. And how about um, as far as kind of like em- empowering some of your athletes to to avoid some of this, to take care of their bodies? Do you have any messages for for athletes um, in that sense? I would I would just like to remind people that you know your food is fuel for your body and. You know, Keegan always has this analogy that she uses, and and I I really like it. She talks about wanting to or, or thinking of herself as a race car, and she only wants to put the the best fuel in into um, into her her race car, and it has to be enough fuel. And this doesn't mean. Um, you know, this doesn't mean that there are good foods and, and bad foods, but she's talking about high quality foods and, you know, Keegan also has a passion for donuts. So <laughs> on occasion, that's, you know, that, that's, that's a donut. Um, and, and so I just, I would really encourage everyone out there, um, listening to, to think of food as your fuel and, and you need that fuel to perform. And, you know, I, I, I would really encourage people to think about their performance as being more than this season, more than their high school career. But, you know, I think it's really hard for adolescents to step back and have like a lifelong perspective. But, um, you know, think about long-term health, educate yourself about long-term health. Um, you know, the bone you're, you're creating, um, your bone mineral density for life. And, and by age 25 or so, you know, you, you have most of that in place. So if there is restriction, 
um, you know, for a season or two or three or five, um, you know, you're setting yourself up for a lifetime of osteoporosis. Um, and, and so I would just encourage people to think about food as being your fuel. Um, I would encourage coaches and, and parents to try to create, um, a relationship based culture, you know, where social emotional learning and, and body acceptance is put ahead of performance and winning. Um, and, and let's think about keeping the joy in sport. And I, I don't think that we, that we have to set aside peak performance, but, you know, sometimes, um, it's not all about the instant gratification. Um, it's, it's about the long game. So I guess those would be my, my final thoughts. That seems like a, a good place to maybe wrap it up. But uh, awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for this. I think this was this is an, an amazing conversation and definitely a super important one to have. And I'm I'm really happy that we're able to have it. Yeah, Rachel, you. can we can we talk about um, resources and yeah, just absolutely kind of like throw out some some resources for for people. Um, you know, first of all, like Rebecca's book is awesome. Finding your sweet spot. She really. Mm-hmm talks about, um, all of the implications of REDS. Um, but then if anyone is struggling with an eating disorder, or if you have questions about, you know, what, what is the diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder? Um, NIDA, which is the National Eating Disorder Association has an awesome website. You know, they even have a section, um, for coaches. Uh, there is, a place called Opal, um, food and body. It's a, it's a intensive outpatient, but, um, inpatient treatment center in Seattle, but it's uh, a place for athletes with eating disorders. Uh, but they have a wonderful podcast called the appetite. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they have awesome, awesome podcasts. I already mentioned with all and their what to say campaign. If you don't know how to talk about uh, reds or eating disorders, check that out. Um, Lauren Fleischman's, um, opinion piece in the New York times. Um, I changed my body for sport. You know, it blew up on the internet so big that she's turning it into a book and I cannot wait to read it. Jesse's blog, you know, she's been really transparent and open about her eating disorder and, and her recovery. Um, and you know, those are, those are just a few I I could go on, but you know, this is a topic that definitely warrants, uh, more discussion, more education. And I really thank you guys at Faster Skier for, for wanting to host this forum. Um, does anybody else have anything they want to add before we, before we go? I'll I'll add one thing. I'll add one thing to all the young athletes out there. Take care of yourselves. I think that's that's my heartfelt message. I think. I've been coaching for 15 years and been involved in sport for, for 30. And, um, you know, sport can be a wonderful place to learn things. It can also be a really devastating place if, if you lose your way. Um, seek help from the people who can and, and, uh, and take care of yourself. I'm going to hop off. i got a client waiting. But thank you so much for this opportunity. It was great. All right. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to check out bouldermountaintour.com or visitsunvalley.com to start planning your next ski vacation.